Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading two texts from Isaiah that are not normally read together, the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1-7, and the description of the ideal king in Isaiah 11, 1-9. In the first text, we find God making an accusation against Israel and Judah, the vineyard that God planted to produce justice and righteousness, but which has instead produced violence and oppression. As a result, God removes the hedge around the vineyard, leaving it vulnerable to destruction. Yet in Isaiah 11, we find a description of a sprout emerging from the stump of Jesse, signaling hope for the future. The sprout represents an ideal leader who is not swayed by what he sees and hears, but by reverence for God, producing the justice and equity that God seeks. We relate Isaiah 11 to King Hezekiah of Judah, to the hoped-for Messiah, and to we ourselves who are called to live non-violently in a world of predation. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's Bible Worm time. <laughs> it's not just regular time. It's Bible Worm time. I'm trying to do new things because I always am like, hey, Amy, how are you? And then you're like, eh, I'm yeah, okay. I know. How do so we, yeah. So my new one is, hey, Amy, it's Bible Worm time. It is Bible Worm time. Yeah. But only, that only leads you so many places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You could ask me icebreaker questions. If you could oh, be know, any animal dressed in any sort of fall apparel, what would you be? I really like the addition you stuck on there. (laughs) Yeah. Dressed in any kind of fall apparel. Okay. Yeah, good. So I think I am going to be, you know, this is kind of hard to picture, but it seems important. Like a spider, (laughs) because there are a lot of spiders out in Atlanta this time of year. And and I really want to be wearing like a scarf. I'm not sure if spiders have necks or like... It seems like that would be awkward, but I also feel committed to it. Yeah. I'm committed. That would be like a full body scarf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are so many spiders in Atlanta. I do not know why people put up those fake spider webs around here because like for real, real, you could just let the spider webs be <laughs> instead of taking them down. Yeah. And so I think you I think your new mission should be to go around to all those spider webs and offer the spiders little tiny spider scarves. That you that, that you could knit yourself. Important work. I would be an iguana in a sleeveless fleece vest. Okay, the, that's yeah. I'm wondering how that fits with like the cold bloodedness of. I was gonna say iguanote, which is my Hebrew <laughs> plural of iguana. Yeah, iguana, iguanote. Yeah. yeah, but I don't actually know anything about animal or human biology. Yeah, so. they need a little. They need a little fleece in the winter. Because otherwise they're very lethargic, kind of like me. I mean, this <laughs> this explains some things about me. Actually, maybe I actually am an iguana. 
This was so much more interesting than asking how I am. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, good times. All right, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it is Bible Worm time. And this week on the Bible Worms, I wonder what kind of winter or fall apparel the Bible Worm would wear if Bible Worm had fall apparel. You're sort of limited when you have no appendages. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back to like, are we like an inchworm? Wait, do inchworms have legs or do worms by definition? They have those little not? tiny, like little, like <laughs> yeah, the little tiny. Things. I'm doing the inchworm legs, but you can't see I, if you're. I, well, I can see. Only you can it's see. A, y'all are missing something. <laughs> Bobby's doing inchworms. Yeah, I'm waving my little arms. inchworm arms. Yeah, but I don't think they're long enough to like fit into sleeves or anything like that. Yeah. You can put little shoes on them, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boots. Oh, yeah. They're, uh, it's like a Bible worm in Uggs. <laughs> do people still wear Uggs when we were at Emory? I wear Uggs. You do? I wear yeah. Uggs and people make fun of me and I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. When we were at Emory, it was like all the undergrad students would wear, all the undergrad girls would wear like tights and Uggs. And it's like, I, that's what I wear in the winter, tights yeah, and Uggs. It's like awesome. sweatpants for my feet. It's amazing. I would wear tights and Uggs if I could, but I feel like it's hard to pull off as a middle-aged man. You know what? You're tenured. You can wear whatever you want. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And then I would go down in Hendrix lore as the professor. You would go down in <laughs> used to teach in tights and Uggs. You wanted <laughs> yeah. a legacy, didn't you? I did. Yeah. And that might be yeah. the best I'm going to get. So yeah. yeah, I sort of reached that stage in my career where I've got to start doing super quirky things so I can have some sort of a legacy. Yeah. You want people to tell your story. They're not going to remember me for good reasons. <laughs> so they can remember me. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. So this Great. week, Amy, we are continuing on in some of our prophetic literature. We're mm. in the book of Isaiah now, and we're in chapters 5 and 11, which are actually two really very well-known passages mm-hmm. in the book of Isaiah. They aren't actually connected, you know, in and of themselves. One is in chapter 5, one is in chapter 11. But when you put them together, they're really kind of interesting. And so... You know, seeing, thinking about how we're going to read chapter 5 and chapter 11 in light of one another. I'm kind of looking forward to that uh, conversation. Mm. Yeah, see what happens. First, we need to think about the prophet Isaiah and where we are, historically speaking, like what's going on in the world of Isaiah that might be relevant to our passage. So last time we were in Hosea in the 8th century in the north. Now we're in Isaiah. What do we need yes. to know to get us ready to read today? So the book of Isaiah itself is, is complicated in its authorship. It, people, it is often divided into chunks that were sort of written at different times, probably by different hands. But the texts we're reading today are all within one chunk, so we don't have to deal with that particular complexity. The best we know is that these texts are from a, a man named Isaiah ben Amos, a prophet who lived in the 8th century, so around the same time as Hosea, but in the south instead of in the north. So this is after the north and the south have split. So they're two separate kingdoms. Uh So I feel like Isaiah has, there's a lot going on politically at this point. There are real political threats from surrounding empires, namely Assyria. And Assyria is always sort of putting pressure on the smaller kingdoms to, you know, basically pay them for protection. You know, it's like mafia on the empire (laughs) level here. And some of the kingdoms agree to do that, and some of the kingdoms rebel and maybe try to form a different alliance. It's it's a complicated political it situation. It is really complicated. 
So a lot of Isaiah, he's he's really giving pretty specific political advice yeah. about, you know, how do you think about like practically speaking, keeping the 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 empire of Judah, the kingdom of Judah safe? Do we rely on God for safety and not form an alliance or have you ever heard that joke about like the the person who's like there's a there's a flood and they oh, yeah. refuse all help because they're like God will save me God will save me and you know like right there's the boat and they're like oh, I don't need the boat I've got God and then there's the helicopter uh-huh. or whatever yeah uh-huh. and then finally the guy drowns and goes to heaven and is like why didn't you save me and God's like hi I sent a boat <laughs> I sent a <laughs> yeah. helicopter like what did you think I was gonna do. So Isaiah is really, a lot of it is dealing with that question of when it makes sense to form, when, if ever, it makes sense to form an alliance yeah. and when you really just have to trust that God is going to do God's thing yeah. and you will be safe. So that's one important message for First Isaiah. Another important message for First Isaiah really in some ways aligns with what Hosea was saying last week mm-hmm. in its attention to the really significant failings of the people Mm. to create the world of justice and equity that God intends and requires of them, that they are falling down on the job. There's a rise of sort of an aristocratic group at this time. And, you know, uh, the imbalance of resource distribution is getting worse and worse and like Hosea, Isaiah is is calling them out and saying, "This is this is not what you were called to do." So those those I would say are the two two big messages of this first section of Isaiah that we'll be reading from. What did I miss? No, that was so good, Amy. When you were talking, it was reminding me of our old professor John Hayes of Blessed Memory used to talk about SPAC, the Syro-Palestinian Anti-Assyrian Coalition. And the question of whether or not Israel should enter into, yeah. or Judah should enter into SPAC or not. Uh, all of those details are kind of out in the weeds. But what you're saying about there is a complicated political scene in which alliances are being made. And there are divisions within Judah about should we join the rebellion? Should we continue to be loyal to Assyria? What's mm-hmm. God's role in all of this? And then all of that getting connected to issues of justice and equity and caring for the poor. And so this is this, I mean, it's really beautiful, but complicated relationship of, you know, life on the ground and how the poor are treated in Judah with international politics, with theology, and all of that's getting kind of mingled up. And I think it's a useful way of thinking about, you know, what's going on in our own world too and how does the way we do or do not do justice and pay proper respect to God inform all of the things that are happening politically for yeah. us? No, I think that's exactly right. And and just to add one more piece to that, I was thinking as I was reading this, these texts today, I imagine that the people of Judah were a little scared. Like they were not sure of their safety and yeah. well-being and that makes you act differently. Yeah. Often makes yeah. you act differently. And I just wonder how that did or didn't play into the way they were treating the vulnerable folks among their own community. Yeah. All right, Amy. So today we pick up in Isaiah, beginning with chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. This is a little passage often known as the Song of the Vineyard, which sounds really lovely. And it begins as a love song 
of a man for his vineyard. And, but it doesn't end <laughs> quite so lovely, but we'll, um, we'll get there in, in a minute. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start out reading the first four verses, and I am in the Common English Bible. Let me sing for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it, and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now, you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Mm. All right, Amy, so... Just trying to figure out who is speaking about whom in this passage is not the easiest thing. It begins with the speaker saying, let me sing for my loved one, a love song for his vineyard. So we've got Mm -hmm. two characters here. We've got a speaker and a loved one, and the loved one owns the vineyard. Is is that what's happening? That's what's happening. And it's funny because I wrote in my notes... three characters, but one of them is the vineyard. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the vineyard so, does turn out to be a character. We don't vineyard, really quite know Yeah. It does yet, turn out to yeah. be a character, but yeah, it's just sort of interesting from the get go. I mean, maybe this is just sort of the life of a prophet is that you kind of, you know, though Isaiah is a, a person of Judah, he is, he is presenting himself as sort of out well, I just gave away the metaphor, didn't I? <laughs> okay, never mind, never mind. You didn't hear that. Shh, spoiler. <laughs> it's hard to know how to read the passages like this when you kind of know where we're headed, but I know. the original I know. audience would not have wanna... known. And so you're trying to capture the like sense of, you know, reveal, which you just blew. I just blew. Yeah, I'm sorry, okay. y'all. I'm sorry. So, oh, yes. Yeah. So, so maybe we'll just leave it at that for now and say there is, there is someone who's singing a song, but it's not a song about his own vineyard. And it's not really a song about his beloved. It's a song for the beloved about his vineyard. Yeah. It's sort of like a someone outside the situation describing it. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I, I mean, I assume that we, in the, the let me is voiced in the text as the voice of Isaiah, presumably. And so Isaiah is singing about his when I read loved one there, I just read like a really good friend of mine. I don't know if we mm-hmm. should read something else in there or not, but like my, my friend, like my dear friend, let me tell you, oh listener, a song about my dear friend and his vineyard. So it's, so it's someone who's close to Isaiah, someone he cares about, but it's not, it's not about him. Yeah. And it draws the listener in like the, the puzzling nature of who's talking to whom like if you try to imagine like what would it have been like to hear this originally when we did not know, like when we have not ever read it before, you kind of get drawn into this thing that is happening. Like, oh, it's Isaiah's friend. And let me see, let me hear the story about him. Can you just talk a little bit about the way the loved one builds the vineyard and what that I mean, I don't even know. Like, I don't know that much about building vineyards, but can you help us think through the I either? Yeah, but <laughs> I can, But I was trying to think about sort of what is this? What does this evoke? For yeah, me? yeah, yeah. And you know, the first part of it, he broke the ground and cleared it of stones. Mm-hmm. That is hard. That is backbreaking yeah. work. Yeah. 
so I guess I maybe that's all I have to say about that. But this is not just like, oh, what a pretty garden that I enjoy looking at. Like there was there was some real labor and pain yeah. that went into creating this. And then planted it with choice vines. And then I have to say, I was a little surprised to see the watchtower appear. Yeah. What do you make of the watchtower? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally with you on the the hard labor that has gone in. My wife and I have had this sort of crazy backyard that the people before us grew these beautiful flowers, but we're just not, we just don't have the time for that. And so like our yard kind of got out of control. And so we needed to redo our yard. And it was very much backbreaking work to the extent that we were just like, we can't break our own backs for this. So we like paid somebody else to come in with like a machinery and do it. But this guy doesn't do that. This guy is like out there in the dirt, picking up the rocks and doing all of this labor, the hard work for the yard. That watchtower, I read that, yes. I don't know if it's just about animals, but also about protecting the vineyard from people who might try to come and I don't know what they would Mm. do, steal the grapes or plant some weeds like in that parable in Matthew that we read. Yeah, yeah. But it's very much a sense of protection. So putting the stones around and putting the watchtower in, there's a sense in which, you know, he's planting the vineyard and also he's establishing like a safety net or safety perimeter. There's going to be a wall around it. I I think that's what he's doing with the stones. Uh, I guess it doesn't quite say, but he's Mm -hmm. building the tower to make sure everything is safe. So he's created a safe environment for these grapes to grow. He's planted the most excellent vines that that you can plant. Yeah. Yeah. The little bit I know about growing grapes, for a vineyard anyway, is that they don't produce right away, Mm -hmm. that they take like three or four years before they're really to full maturity. So not only is there a labor investment here, but there's also a time investment, the sort of patient watching and tending and protecting this, this vineyard. Yeah. Bobby, I, I also, I don't know if we're ready to move on to the wine press, but I'm really struck by the wine press because what mm. it made me think is that the the real goal here is not the grapes. Yes. It's what will come from yes. the grapes. The yeah. grapes are a means to an end. <laughs> yeah. Which is the wine. Yeah. Can you, I think that's exactly right. So the, the wine press is suggesting that the end goal is to produce the highest quality of wine. Yeah. And the grapes get you there. Can you can you talk a little bit about the difference that makes in your reading? I mean again, I'm trying so hard to put off the um translation of this parable into, you know, what I think it, he's really talking about here because I think the longer we can put that off, the more fruitful, haha. Uh, <laughs> the more fruitful the reading can ultimately be. But it just, it does, it it feels a little different to me. It's like, I mean, maybe not quite this, but like you're, you're growing, is it like this? You're growing trees because you need the wood for something, mm. not because you need the trees themselves. Maybe oh, that would, maybe that's going too far because then you actually have to damage the trees. And right, you don't actually have to damage the vine. You don't have to damage the vines, but 
you want something from it. Yes. And for some reason, it makes a difference to me that you're not just talking about eating the grapes. Yes. It's that there's one step further from that. Yes. That is what you what you really want. Yes. So he's, the beloved one is tending the vines so that they will produce the grapes that will not just be satisfying in themselves, but can create this wine, which, you know, it would... Wine was more of a staple in the ancient world than it is mm-hmm. for m- many of us today. You didn't have as many like clean sources of drinking water and such. And so people often would drink wine. But there's also a lot in the biblical text about wine that gladdens the human heart and thing like images of like, this is one of the things that make kind of makes life worth living, right? Is having this, you know, good wine that you can enjoy mm-hmm. and also that, you know, warms your warms your heart. Yeah. And so that's the goal is this sort of like, I like thinking about it like that is what he really has in mind is this sort of enjoyment of life and this mm. thing that will contribute positively to the well-being of the world or something like that. I love that. And it's such a, I mean, at least in the modern Jewish world or the Jewish world for a long time, I don't know about biblically, it, it is a, a vehicle for the sanctification of many things. Yes. Yeah. I love mm. that, that it is, it's a vehicle for joy and holiness. So the speaker in this part shifts in verse three. And the speaker says, judge between me and my vineyard. So Mm -hmm. now the speaking voice Mm -hmm. is the beloved one who Mm -hmm. did all this work and Mm -hmm. who planted all these grapes and who tended them and waited for them for years. And the instruction is you who live in Jerusalem. And so now, you know, we live in Jerusalem if we're readers of this text. So we're like, yeah. Me? Like, yeah, you have been beckoned I thought I was now. just listening to the story. <laughs> yeah. just, this is a nice story about you and your friend. And now <laughs> we've been invited into it. And what we are asked to do is judge between me and my vineyard. Yeah. That, that was not where I, we thought this was going, right? No, it's not. And I, I know this is not the point, but it makes me laugh every time because I feel like that's the like, I'm sure I said this last time we talked about this text, but it's so funny. Like these like memes all over the place that are like, if a plant fails to grow, would you ever blame the plant? Obviously not. In the, <laughs> in the like comparing it to sort of education yeah. or parenting, like if your child's not thriving, yeah. you can't blame the child. Well, no, but here we are. That's what we're going to do. We're going to blame that vineyard. Yeah. <laughs> it's the vineyard's fault that these grapes are bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That is interesting because, I mean, what what he then says is, what more could I have done? I've done everything. I got the best vines. I tilled the ground. I made sure it was protected. I did all of the things. What more could I do? Yes. And so if it's not my fault, it's got to be the vineyard's fault. Right. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I take your point, but I do think that there are times when you would say, like, I just got some bad seeds or... I've got bad soil in my yard. Like I do, I do think we bl- blame the natural world. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I just think it's funny because a vineyard's like an inanimate object. <laughs> <laughs> Judge but, between know, me. However, yeah. I, I I understand this is this is a. Oh I, yeah, I'm like <laughs> taking my backyard to court because I wanted it to grow beautiful flowers and it grew thistles. Yeah. But I do sort of like holding on to that parenting or educator metaphor a little bit more like the level of frustration that that the speaker feels for all that they have done 
the backbreaking work and the patience of waiting and the care and the sort of guarding over it. Yeah. There is a real sense of, I mean, I want to say at the first sort of a, a powerlessness that, that can shift very quickly into anger or, yeah. or something else. But yeah. you thought you had it under control. So the vineyard did the right thing in one sense. Like it produced grapes. It just didn't produce the right kind of grapes. This one is rotten grapes. Is What's your translation? <laughs> Mine says wild grapes. It made me think of, have you ever had muscadine? That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I Which love people muscadines. people do eat, you do? Yeah. Oh my God. You were about Good to say God. crazy people eat those. Oh, yeah, no. crazy people eat them. I just think they're so horrible. They're, what am I good? Y'all should never eat muscadines. Well, okay. <laughs> you maybe, definitely maybe should. Maybe we could have, a, okay, Bobby life muscadines. One of my They're good just, friends growing up had a muscadine vine. I don't know why, in this backyard. And so I would just go over and grab muscadine. They're very sour. Yeah. People mm-hmm. drink, I mean, and then maybe this is a Southern thing too. I don't know, but people drink muscadine wine. Yeah. I guess it's because that's what they got, you know, like that's you can't exactly afford. That's exactly right. It's what yeah. they got. And so maybe I like that reading and I was expecting like a, Cabernet, and I got muscadine wine. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The Bible worm translation of Isaiah 5. That's right. Does it seem different? Like, you could imagine that these vines just didn't produce anything. Like, they turned out, like, my dad planted some blueberry bushes in our backyard when I was mm-hmm. a kid, and the, they, like, literally never grew a blueberry in, like, 30 years. And you could have imagined that. But this is not that. This is, no. they're producing grapes. They're just not the right kind of grapes. And it's almost like that's almost sadder in some ways because you have this hope when you see the thing growing that everything's working. Yeah, you know? it <laughs> like looks that great. It worked. It looks great. Like we, you know, yeah, you, it gives you hope. But then it's this like sort of sham, sham yeah. hope. Hi, y'all. It's Amy, one of your friendly co-hosts. And I want to tell you why Bible Worm is important to me. There's a Jewish tradition that Torah study is best done with a partner, a hevruta, we call it, someone who pushes you beyond where you would have gone on your own. Bobby was essentially my hevruta for 10 years of grad school, and I've never found a thought partner quite like him. So when he asked if I wanted to read texts together, there was no real thought process before I said yes. The decision to record this podcast the way we do was risky. We don't have a script. We don't pre-talk things. We are thinking together live. And it is my hope that precisely because of that, you feel invited to think along with us. Because everyone needs a Hevruta. And if you don't have one, I hope you will let us be yours. If this way of being in relationship to biblical text speaks to you the way it speaks to me, I hope you'll help sustain us through Patreon at whatever level makes sense for you. There are some nice perks if you need them. Liturgies, videos, monthly discussion groups. This year I've added some recordings of the chanting of these texts that you might hear in a synagogue. Or you can just support us to show your appreciation and help us know that this work matters. Thanks for listening and for supporting us however you can. All right, well, let's continue on and see what what happens next. Okay. This is still the beloved one, the the vineyard grower who is speaking. Mm -hmm. Now let me tell you what I'm doing to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin 
It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. Hmm. So that obviously this sort of takes a turn at the end of verse six. And so we're like, oh, there's something more going on here than just a beloved and a vineyard. But the first part, we're still in the, in the metaphor. It seems like it's just somebody who is got given up on their vineyard, I guess. They're really mad about the vineyard. So thoughts about before we get to the withholding rain part, because that's when you start to think like, mm, maybe this isn't just like, you know, my buddy next door. But the way that the speaker is going to destroy the vineyard is by removing the hedges, breaking down the walls, not pruning or hoeing. Do you have thoughts about that way of talking about destruction? I mean, it's like it's 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 not straight up destruction. It's yeah. just removal of all care and protection and sort of let let whatever happens happen. Yeah. Except maybe commanding the clouds to drop no rain on it. That seems a little spiteful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's you know, it at first blush again like because it's a vineyard, it's an inanimate object, like I I find I always find this hit, the anger of this speaker a little <laughs> amusing. Yeah. But I also think it's really real. Like when you have put that much work and hope into something, it's not necessarily logical. It's not necessarily like it doesn't help the situation to feel anger at a vineyard, but it's, it's real. Yeah. So it's interesting here that it doesn't, he doesn't set the vineyard on fire. Yeah. He just angrily removes, but he also doesn't just abandon it. Right. You know, he take he intentionally takes down anything that might have um, protected it. Yeah, that t- you're articulating that sort of middle ground really well, because it like what part of me wants to read it as he just abandoned his vineyard, and it and it grew over, and the wild animals came, and and it went to seed, and but you're but you're exactly right. The very first thing I'm removing its hedge, I'm breaking down its walls, and so it's like the speaker is undoing the things that the speaker had done in the first part. I mm-hmm. built a wall, yeah. I built a hedge, I built a watchtower. Okay. I'm just going to take all that away mm-hmm. and then see what happens to you naturally. So there is, mm-hmm. it's not just the like n- not putting in any further effort. It is actually undoing the effort that had been done before. Right. And then letting nature take its course. Yeah. So there is a spitefulness about it. Like I could totally understand, like I tried to fix my backyard the weeds grew back, fine. Like I'm just going to have a weedy backyard. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to go out and tear down the fence in the backyard or whatever so that the weeds can have an easier access. There's a different sense about that. Yeah, there's more emotion in here. But again, not not to the point that you actively destroy, that you really actively destroy it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't pull up all the things that he's planted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's some real, like there's some some hurt. Mm Mm-hmm really reflected here. And in the CEB anyway, there is the language of, in verse five, I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. Yeah. And in verse six, I'll turn it into a ruin. Mm-hmm. And then, But the way I'm going to turn it into a ruin is by not pruning it or hoeing it anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's an intentionality mm-hmm. about, yes. like, I know this thing's going to be a ruin and I want that to happen. 
Yes. But I'm not going to be the active one destroying it. I'm going to let it let the vineyard see what will happen yeah, to it. Yeah, right. It's exactly like if it's, you imagine, again, sort of personifying the vineyard, that you want the vineyard to see that without without your care, it will fall apart. Yeah. And so you are removing all care very intentionally. So it will see that. You're kind of proving a point. But Amy, I was thinking about your comment earlier about how it's weird or funny for the speaker to ask for judgment between him and the vineyard. Mm. But then he doesn't actually wait to hear what the judgment is. It's let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just curious about that. Like, I want you to tell me what the judgment is, but I'm going to do what I was going to do kind of anyway. Do you think this poem is assuming that the judgment is a negative one? Like the people are going to say, oh, it's totally the vineyard's fault. Or do you think this poem is saying it doesn't actually matter what you, dear reader, think? Here's Mm -hmm. what's getting ready to happen. Or does it make any difference? It's a good question. Like, what is the point of asking the listener to be the judges? Yeah. Other than, like, to sort of ask. I, I mean, it does certainly shift the mindset. Yeah. Of the listener. Yeah. But you're right. It's We don't actually need the judgment. What we need is the listener to shift the way they're interacting with this yeah. story. There's one way of reading that that reminds you of the parable that Nathan tells David mm-hmm. after the Bathsheba incident Mm -hmm. where he tells a story that gets David to say that guy was in the wrong. And Nathan says, you're that guy. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of hear that sort of a setup here. Yes. So if you read it that way, then the speaker says, what should I do? And then people are like, that vineyard's totally their fault. And then the vineyard owner is like, I'm going to destroy it. And so you get that kind of message where the people are going to end up implicating themselves Mm-hmm. If you read mm-hmm. it the other way, which is which I kind of like, it's not the way I naturally read it. But if you're like, let me judge between me and my vineyard, and the people are like, what are you talking? What are you even talking about? Like your vineyard is an inanimate object. <laughs> and then then the message is, it doesn't matter whether you think it deserves judgment yeah. or not. I think it deserves judgment, and so mm. you, at the end of the day, your opinion doesn't matter. I mean, it's so. I feel like if the question had been, what should I do about my vineyard? Mm, yeah. That seems like a much more, yeah, uh, a question that is easier for me to sit with. Yeah. But saying judge between me and my vineyard is just, it's just <laughs> funny. Yeah. Funny language. Yeah. Funny. So the big reveal, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of been slipping toward the big reveal, especially when mm-hmm. the apparently like, guy next door commands the clouds not to rain on the on the vineyard, you start to think like, maybe this guy is not just a guy. The big reveal comes in verse seven, right? The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. The people of Judah are the plantings. And then God turns out to be the beloved, expected justice, but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but a cry of distress. Mm-hmm. Like this is the, like this whole thing has been building towards this, moment. It turns out to be some sort of a prophecy. Can you just talk about once that clicks in, in verse seven, like how that informs the reading of the poem? You know, for whatever reason, this time around, when I when I got to verse seven, what was most striking to me was, you know, back at the beginning, we were talking about what he's really after is the wine. Mm-hmm. 
and here it sort of talks about the the house of Israel as the seedlings or the men of Judah. And what he hoped for was justice. And what he hoped for was equity. Like that was the wine. Yes. And what he got was nothing like that. Yes. And for me, it just was, it almost reminded me of like creation for some reason. That yes. it's, that humans are are not an end in themselves. Like they are here Yes. For something that comes through them. Yes. And it didn't. But but then but our very nature impacts what comes through us. And yeah. I love that way of reading it, Amy. I think that's I think that's exactly right. And going back to that thought earlier about what's the point of wine, and there is like a the wine is what makes life worth living in that sort of sense. Mm. Like it's the thing that brings joy to the human heart. Now you have this sense that justice is that. Like, this is mm. the precondition of human joy and human thriving. And you can't produce that. I just got this sort of muscadine mm-hmm. <laughs> justice, mm-hmm. uh, sour justice. And so that's not, what, that's not what we were after. There's this beautiful rhyme, or not, it's not a rhyme, it's a wordplay in Hebrew the prophet says, God expected justice, mishpat, but there was bloodshed, mispach. God expected righteousness, tzedakah, but got a cry of distress, tzedakah. And so, like, in Hebrew, you hear that. It's hard to capture it in English. I wonder if anybody's ever tried to capture that in English. But it's, like, it hits so hard. And it's, they're all, like, mishpat and mispach are really only different by one sound. And tzedakah and tzedakah are only different by one sound. So it's like, it's close. It's not like they're totally different things. It's like, ah, we were like. Right, right. But, it's like the, like you were saying about like, what if there had been no grapes and nothing right. grew? That's not what happened. It looked like, it looked like it was working. And maybe it's close enough that from the inside, like if you were the grape, You know, you might think like, yeah, I mean, we're only off by one letter. So like, we're pretty close. But in fact, this is not at all what. mm -hmm. Yeah, my translation, I think is trying to capture that. I don't know. I don't know that I think it did a great job. But it says God hoped for justice, but behold, injustice for equity, but behold, inequity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's better. I I mean, like yours is a better translation of the meaning of the words. Right. And this one is trying to hold on to similarity, you know. Yeah, I I think that's a better way of handling that wordplay. Although, you know, justice and injustice are like, injustice is not justice. Yes, right. It's not just like a little twisted perversion of it. Mispach, like if you weren't paying careful attention, you might think it was justice. That's right. Which to me leads down this whole path of like, what are the things that we call justice in our own time that mm-hmm. are not actually just? Mm-hmm. Like a minimum wage that doesn't mm-hmm. actually cover mm-hmm. the bills for a family mm-hmm. for a month or whatever. Yeah. Like we talk about that. Like yeah, everybody gets minimum wage. But in fact, if you can't live on it, it's not justice. Right. So it's not, it, we talk about it like mishpat, but in fact it's mispach. Mm. Those kinds of things, I think, get you you get invited to think about those kinds of things when I you love play that. with that wordplay. Yes, the things that have have enough of the trappings of justice that we are confused and we think they're real. They're they're justice. 
Amy, we have another passage to move to in chapter 11. I sure wanted to ask you. you, are there things, is there anything about that parable of the vineyard that we've left unturned? Unturned, any stone unturned in our vineyard? I don't think so. I think I have said my piece about the vineyard. The image that we are leaving is a, a vineyard which has been, had its hedges removed. It has been overgrown and trampled by wild animals. And this is said to be Judah and Israel. And so the people, in if they have condemned the vineyard, then they have condemned themselves. And however you think about it, we're leaving it in sort of disarray and, and destruction. We then move on to another plant metaphor in chapter 11. The narrative lectionary has us in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, We're going to continue on through chapter nine. We might not get to spend a lot of time with that extra part, but it's such a beautiful passage. I want to make sure we talk about it just a little bit. In Isaiah's prophecy, these are separated by six chapters. I don't think they're really meant to be read together, but when you put them together, it's kind of interesting when you start from this like overgrown vineyard and then you read chapter 11 verses one to five. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked." Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. So I just want to start in verse one with this concept of a shoot growing out from the stump of Jesse or a branch sprouting from its roots. Can you just talk about that image as a as an image? Yeah, and you know, it, it might be worth saying that in, in the text immediately before this, you know, Isaiah is also talking about the problem of the Assyrians, right? right? And so these very powerful Assyrians are sort of portrayed as these giant trees that just, you know, that, that will be felled before they can sort of take over. So we already have this image in our head of like a powerful empire that is a tall tree. Yeah. So then to go immediately into a shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. So Jesse, this is the ancestor of David. So we're, we're talking about the Davidic line here. Right. So, I mean, so it, we start with a stump, which is this, you know, sort of once grand, cut down, nothing to look at, humble thing. And then this, like a twig shall sprout from it, this like fragile, vulnerable little thing growing from something that you may have thought was dead. Yeah. I should I feel like I should note here that this word that is often translated stump and is also in my NJPS translation marked as stump I think can also be for a trunk. So it's mm. so the the it is common most commonly described as a stump, but I feel like that like Isaiah generally speaking doesn't seem to think the Davidic dynasty is doomed. So I'm not I'm not sure whether it stump or trunk is a better yeah. reading here, but I think they're they're pretty different. 
they are pretty different. The second half of that line is will sprout from his roots, mm. which to me sounds like mm-hmm. we're going back. We're going all the way back to the basics. Maybe that's why people prefer the stump image. We're going all the way back. I think, I mean, I think honestly, my preference for it is probably about the interpretation I want to draw from it. <laughs> uh, but I do think that parallel also helps. But I mean, especially if we read it in light of chapter five, where we've just had this destruction and it appears that everything has been cut all the way back, the societal structures have fallen apart, the monarchy has lost its power. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a little, there's a little branch, there's a little sprout growing out of the root or growing out of the stump. So there is yet life in that tree. I think that's really pow- I think that's a really powerful image. I'm talking a lot about my yard today, but it's, like, it's on my mind. <laughs> I mean, also- the text is asking you to. Yeah, there were also these trees that uh, were cut down. There was actually the power company that cut them down because they were growing under the power line. I never really spent that much time looking at trees that had been cut down. I just kind of thought when a tree gets cut down, like it's like that's it for that tree. But those little trees are like shooting out all kinds of little sprouts and they're coming out of, they really are coming out of the roots. Like stump part is dead, but they're coming out of the roots. And like, it's just a like what appeared to have been completely destroyed. You can see like given enough time, it has the will, the life force to grow back into a, into a tree again. It's a really powerful image for somebody who's experienced destruction. Yeah. feels like there's no hope. So it turns out that this sprout is identified here as a him, a person. It has these certain kind of characteristics. I want to come back to the question of who is the him. First, I just want to talk about the characteristics of this person. I can't, okay, I just have, I'm picturing Groot. I just have to put that out there. I have to not picture him. From, from <laughs> what is it that ga- Galaxy Avengers? Guardians the of the Galaxy. galaxy? Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. Yeah, okay. That's like a little is. tree guy. Continue, a little tree guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Continue. So, yeah. So they're in verse two, in verse three. We've got the Lord's spirit, wisdom, understanding, planning, and strength, knowledge, and fear. Fear of the Lord. Thoughts about those characteristics as the particular characteristics of this leader. I mean, I feel like these are these are the hopes that we have had for every leader of the people for every king Mm -hmm. and it 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 just gets it gets seems to get twisted into human power and abuse of power so so quickly but this is not new these are not new ideas about what what we want (laughs) it's just it seems like the the image is that all the all the power and grandeur has been stripped away and we're going to try again, 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 mm-hmm. against all odds. We're going to try again with, with these, these same core ideals. The part that really dr- draws my attention is the end of verse three into verse four. Mm-hmm. He won't judge by appearances or decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that imagery? You know, first I asked, like, well, how, that's a big ask. How do you not judge by by what your senses can tell you? Mine mine doesn't have hearsay. It says by what your ears perceive. So hearsay Mm. changes a little bit. But 
I like that. I like your translation. Yeah. You're not judging by what you can see in here. Yeah. And so like, what does that mean? That's, you know, and, and sort of what I can come to, I guess, is, is to always know that there is more to it than what you can see and mm-hmm. hear. And then leading that into judging the poor with equity feels so true and poignant to me. And I was thinking about like the ways in which once someone is already sort of economically downtrodden, the way that they might look or sound mm. reinforces some notions that people have over what, like, it, it seems like, oh, well, the reason you don't have more yes. wealth is because whatever, you smell weird. Like, I mean, whatever. Well, yeah. if you've been living on the street, you'd smell pretty weird too. Like it's, yeah. but it like, it, it reinforces these ideals we have of what makes someone honorable. And so it is really mis it is really misleading. I love that so much, Amy. And thinking about my friends at Canvas community that I worship with on Sunday nights, and that's exactly who they are. Like they're flawed, amazing, beautiful people like we all are, but they look a certain kind of way. And they've had certain kinds of experiences. They mostly have, you know, felony records. And, you know, when you judge by what you see and hear, it is very much possible to say they kind of deserve what they've got. And therefore, I have no responsibility here. That's exactly right. But if you if you ignore all of that and say, no, no, mm-hmm. the poor deserve justice. And mm-hmm. that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And all of that other stuff goes away. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. It goes back a little bit to that mishpach mishpat thing mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier. That it's if you hear it and it's close enough, you know, yeah, then maybe you think it's good enough. But if you just have justice in your in your mind, yeah, things become clearer. Mm-hmm. The end of verse four. So there's violence here. He will strike the violent. Uh, He will kill the wicked. But the weapons that are being wielded Mm. are the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, the belt of righteousness, and the belt of faithfulness. I don't know if the belts are weapons or just holding his pants up. (laughs) But anyway. Mine has the girdle, which is a... a, (laughs) It's a whole other thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, the spanks of righteousness. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I took us astray there. We were getting ready to say something <laughs> profound. Can you just talk a little bit about that? So both the fact that there is violence there, but also that it's mouth mm. and words and breath violence. I mean, I think this text doesn't have the illusion that there are not hard things in the world that have to be dealt with. And even things that we might consider like battles. But it does imagine that we can somehow <laughs> fight the fights we need to without violence, with relying instead on justice and faith and our words and our wisdom. So I read that, you know, the belt sort of is like, you know, you talk about like gird your loins, whatever. I don't know what exactly that means, but it means you're going into war. Like, <laughs> Tie your skirts up around your waist. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're getting ready. And so, so somehow that becomes justice and faithfulness instead. 
Now, the text is a little vague on the details of how exactly that yeah. plays out, but wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of prophetic texts is they're a little vague on the details. Mm. Like if this were a policy position, you'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you want to feel inspired about, well, what would it look like to speak truth in ways that defend the poor from the violent? Yeah. And then we can come up with our own policy positions. But first we need the yeah. possibility that one could do such a thing. And to be willing to speak truth in a way that has the, you know, power, metaphorical power, actual power, I don't know, that is akin to something that you could do with a weapon. Yeah. Like use use speech in all of its power. Yeah. Or faith in all of its power. And yeah. to take those things as, as real, real, I mean, I have said power too many times, but <laughs> at not just as sort of these like, you know, soft characteristics, but something you can actually do something with. Yeah. So, Amy, this text in the Christian tradition is, is actually often an Advent text, which is kind of interesting that we're not in Advent yet. And we're mm. talking about this text. It is, as you would imagine, most often understood as a reference to Jesus, a prediction of the Davidic Messiah, who in the Christian tradition is understood as Jesus. I'm curious, first of all, how it is read in your tradition. Is it a Davidic Messiah kind of figure? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, yes. It, it is a messianic text in the Jewish tradition too. And so, you know, that can mean different things to different people, but it definitely envisions an age that is led by an individual where things are profoundly different from how we imagine is possible right mm-hmm. now. Do you have an imagination about what Isaiah was talking about? Mm. Was he imagining such a, like a distant future? I don't know, Bobby. Do you have a thought about that? You know, Isaiah the dating of things in Isaiah and what's a late redaction and all those things are always Mm -hmm. complicated. But to me, the most plain sense reading is here we have a Judah that is under threat from Assyria. And this is a expectation that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, who is remembered as one of the two good Kings after David in the, in the biblical text is going to be this, this guy who leads this way. And according to the Book of Kings, he he was kind of like this. But then all of that falls back apart again. And then you just, you know, so it's like even if this was about Hezekiah and and the Davidic kingship did achieve for a moment this kind of leadership, it just reverted back. And then by the time of Manasseh and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, it gets and leads ultimately to the exile. So I think it's a mistake for modern readers to limit this. I think we might say, yes, Isaiah was hoping that Hezekiah might be this kind of leader. But I think as modern readers, we need to say, okay, well, yes. Well, yeah, how, do we, how do we use this text? And also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about what you, like you were saying, there's all kinds of ways that one could take that sort of messianic expectation. Is there one that you like to, or one that you prefer to read? I mean, I think that the most common conversation that I hear in the Jewish community is whether we are really expecting a person or whether we're expecting an age in which 
there might be a person, but it's not really about one person solving all the stuff. Yeah. I don't know, Bobby. My messianic hopes are a little weak at the moment, so I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't I know. It, this all feels very far away. I hear that absolutely. I think there is also a way of reading the he there. I don't know if people do this or not, but you could read the he there as Israel or the people of faith, which mm. the second part of Isaiah does yes. talks about servant as Israel and the has servant whole, is Israel. Mm-hmm. whole expectation for what the people itself might do. And you could read this that way to say there is in this community, this hope that the community could actually conduct itself in this way. And therein lies the, the hope for the future. Mm. Mm. I like that. The very end of this passage presses a little us a little bit beyond the narrative lectionary, but I just think it's worth reading and we can just make a comment or two about it. It's in uh, chapter 11, verses six through nine. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. Mm. I'm just going to ask what you want to say about that. I mean, it just is like the whole natural order of things as I have always known them can change. Mm -hmm. That is what this text is telling me it can change and it will change it's so says isaiah so says isaiah mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is you know the predator and the prey are not going to be predator and prey to each other anymore they're going to snuggle up and watch a movie you know yeah. <laughs> yeah what you were saying earlier about it would it would be possible for humans not to be violent and you then you know the first response is but we've we've never seen that Right? right, like I mean, we've seen individual humans not be violent, but humankind. Mm-hmm. So that seems impossible. But then in this passage, you've got leopards and goats sitting down together, and you've got bears and lions eating grass and straw. Like even like animals that are fundamentally carnivores, fundamentally predators, are being portrayed as. It's even possible that they would put off their sort of innate predatory nature yeah, and give up the ways of violence. So if, if a leopard can do that, yeah, then surely it's remind for some reason, Bobby, this is reminding me a little bit of some of our discussions of the stories in Genesis that we yes. read this year. Yeah. You know, we can't in those stories, you know, like the story of Sarah's very unlikely uh, giving birth to Isaac at this point in her life, as an example, it's not, it's not that we, the text can promise that that miracle is going to happen for everyone, but I. But what we raised up, I think, and I've been thinking about a lot since then, is that we actually don't know what is possible, and things that seem impossible mm. might, in fact, happen. And we laugh at it, and then the angel and says, we Why laugh did you laugh? at it. Yeah. yeah, 
And then we have to remember the moment. We have to remember that the thing we thought was impossible felt so, like after it happens, we can't just be like, yay, that's so great. I feel like Mm -hmm. we have to remember the moment that it felt totally impossible because it's like the distance between that and our celebration once it happens, that's going to happen again in our life in some other circumstance. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, there'll be some other moment where you feel like there's no possible way forward. And so you... You have to remember what seemed impossible that happened. I love that, Amy. When you mentioned Genesis, I was my head went all the way back to Genesis mm-hmm. 1, in which the plants are given as food for the animals. Mm-hmm. And it is understood in that text that in the beginning of creation, there were no predatory animals. Mm-hmm. They were all eating grass mm-hmm. and leaves, mm-hmm. plants. And it's only when we get the flood story that God gives permission for basically for predation. And so in that sense, this thing that we imagine is possible in the biblical story already has been. It's the way the world was created to be. And the world has gotten off kilter and it can be, it can be reoriented. I don't quite know how that, changes that reading that you gave us, which I think is a beautiful reading, but to think like the world in which we live is not the world as it was meant to be, but as the world that has gone a little haywire because we can't tell the difference between Mishpat and Mispach. Yeah. That maybe, maybe we could get back there instead of this sort of impossible dream. That's really interesting. And it's interesting, especially because, you know, these the sort of weapons of violence have been taken away here and, and replaced with, uh, you know, faith and justice and wisdom. And and it was sort of the, the introduction of, or that the awareness of violent impulses in creation that, that led to like, okay, fine, eat, fine, eat animals. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do something with this yeah. impulse. Yeah, so yeah. fine, do that. Oh, I never put that together like that, but you're exactly right. But what if we could go back? What if we could go all the way back to the stump and yeah. start over? Yeah. Mm. All right, Amy. Well, not unlike Isaiah, we are living in a complicated and difficult moment in history. Maybe that is always and ever true, but it surely feels especially true right now. So as you're reading these two texts, one about the destruction of the vineyard, one about a sprout growing out from the stump of Jesse, thinking about where they connect to our moment, what are you thinking? This is not what I was going to say, but I'm moved by the way you asked that question. So I'll, so I'll try this instead, and we'll see what comes out of my mouth spontaneously. This past Shabbat in the Jewish community, we read uh, the creation story. We're starting over again. And... A friend of mine who lives in Israel had done this art project where it was like sort of, you know, it was it was going to be, it was planned to be seven panels, one for each day of creation, sort of depicting creation. But she included an eighth panel for the, the tohu vavohu, which is the, you know, mm. unformed chaos and void that is described in Genesis 1 as what was there before anything and she, and she said i feel like we're there like everything mm. everything has been cut completely back and we are in the chaos and we're going to have to rebuild in all the ways 
And so I don't know if I'm quite ready to sit with the the hope of Isaiah this morning. I don't feel very hopeful today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do really like that. I I like how this conversation sort of opened up those connections and those possibilities of even when things seem so when you're just at at everything has been destroyed it seems mm-hmm. what possibilities could that could that possibly open up for something mm-hmm. different in the future yeah i really love that amy thank you for that what are you thinking about this text today bobby these texts well i think in both of these texts like i for myself i'm connecting the two and the connection is about imagining our own responsibility both for the injustice that is in the world and for the future hope that is yet still possible. Mm. And to me, that vineyard text, you know, judge between me and my vineyard. And then when we say, well, of course it's the vineyard's fault, it comes straight back at us, right? It's actually that you are not doing justice. And so I'm reflecting on that and the ways in which I take mispach as close enough to mishpat. If I don't pay close attention, they sound kind of alike, even though they are fundamentally different. And I'm trying to think about, and I think this text is an invitation to think about the ways in which our own lives, even as they try to approximate justice and righteousness, are actually contributing to violence and the cry of the oppressed. And to, and to be serious about that yeah. and to live just for a minute with the possibility that some of the devastation that we see around us is not happenstance and it's not God's direct action as punishment, but it is the hedge was removed and we are reaping some of our own plantings. And, and what does that mean for us? It's painful to think about, but I think it's important to think about. Yeah. The Stump of Jesse text to me, in my tradition, this is a text about Jesus, and I think rightly so. It's it's a beautiful image of what the world can yet still be like in the future. And so I want it to be that in my tradition. And also, I want to come back to the reading we were working on right there at the end about, but it's not just about Jesus. This is also about our community and my community and me. And what, how am I going to enter into the world in the, in the opportunities that I have to be a leader and to make a difference? And am I going to come in not judging by what I can see and hear, but by the law, by the Torah that's put out there is this is what matters. And am I going to be somebody who speaks truth and who operates out of reverence for God and who uh, seeks justice for the poor in real ways and not approximate ways. Yeah. I will leap for joy when Jesus comes back or the Davidic Messiah comes back or the Messianic age comes upon us and all of that happens without me having to do it. But in the meantime, I think mm-hmm. we're invited into this struggle yes. for that. We are the inbreaking of the future kingdom. We are the beginnings. We are the, in that sense, the uh, the sprout of the stump of Jesse. And so we need to start sprouting. And I think sometimes I get so overwhelmed by the stumpiness, the destruction that I think, what, 
what can be done. But this text is like, you just gotta, you gotta start, find the life that's in you and put, put the good that you can into the world in these kinds of ways. And that's how, that's how it all starts. Yeah. In the Jewish community, there are, uh, we talk sometimes about the ways that we can hasten the coming of the Messiah, not that Mm. we ourselves become the Messiah, but that, yes, through our actions, we can, we can press the issue. (laughs) (laughs) We can press the issue a little bit. I I, I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Christian language tends to be about the inbreaking of the kingdom. Like we are mm. ma- visible manifestations of a kingdom that has not yet arrived, but yet you can, you should be able to look at our communities and see it, mm-hmm. which is not often see it, the case. See it reflected. But, yeah. but it could be. Mm. All right, mm. Amy. Next week we are going to be, oh, we're going to be back in the narrative part. We're going to be in Second Kings 22, and 23, which is the story of King Josiah discovering what may or may not have been the book of Deuteronomy in the temple. Fantastic. Great. I look forward to it. All right. I'll see you then. I'll see you next time. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll discuss the story of Josiah discovering a scroll of Torah in the temple, as told in 2 Kings 22, 1-20, and 23, 1-3. Until then, keep on digging.